So uh, this Waffle House in North Carolina was in the news because of one of its customers, a guy by the name of Alex Bowen. He uh, had a third shift job. He would get off of work at 1.30ish in the morning. A lot of times he'd like to go to this Waffle House and order his favorite meal, which was a Texas bacon cheesesteak. And so he'd go there, he'd eat, and then he'd go home sleep, right? Well, this particular time, they, uh, he went there, and there was no one at the front counter. And so, you know, he, he kind of ring the bell and figured someone was in the back that was kind of normal, and, but no one came out. So he waited a little longer, and he rang the bell again, and no one came out. And so because he was a regular and he, he knew the employees there, he figured, I'm going to go in the back and check out. Maybe they're, they can't hear me or something. So he went into the back only to discover that the only employee working at the Waffle House that night was fast asleep. Well, he knew this guy, and he thought, I'm not going to wake him up. He's tired and everything. So Alex decided, he decided to go to the grill himself, and he made himself his own uh, Texas bacon cheesesteak. Cheese he gave himself a little extra bacon. He ate, ate the food. Uh, he cleaned the grill. He left the money on the counter, and off he went. No one would have known what happened Except Alex took some selfies and he decided to post what had happened, right? There he is right there. And so that's when the owner and, and the uh, employee working that night figured, uh-oh, that's got a problem. Now, here's our first principle for this morning. If, you want, if you're taking down notes, you're going to want to write this down. This is important. First principle, first takeable, we'll do almost anything for a Texas bacon cheesesteak. Write that down. That's important. I didn't mean to mess up your notes. Some of you take me serious. Okay, here, here's the real takeaway. It's important to wait, but at some point in time, you got to act. It's important to wait, right? But at some point in time, you got to head into the kitchen and you got to start making your sandwich if that's what it's going to take. If you weren't with us last week, we started a brand new series in the book of Nehemiah. Uh, last week, Nehemiah chapter one was Nehemiah waiting. That's all he's doing, right? And you go, has anything happened? No, nothing's happened. No, no. He's waiting. He, he's praying right? There, there's value to waiting. You, you know, the, when a woman is pregnant, she's essentially waiting for nine months before she produces what she wants, which is the baby, right? So waiting that matters. You can't push along and make something go quickly that isn't intended to go quickly. You have to wait on the Lord. The principle we talked about last week, before you do anything else, pray. But Nehemiah chapter two is Nehemiah heading into the kitchen and deciding, okay, now it's time to act. The book of Nehemiah is incredibly practical because it's the story about Nehemiah and his incredibly huge problem that he has, which is a broken wall. The, the wall in Jerusalem has been destroyed, and it is not only a security problem, it is a spiritual problem. And so he, he desperately wants to get this wall built. Why it's so practical is every one of us walked in here today with a problem. Some of us have a small problem, and it's more an annoyance. And some of us, uh, we got huge problems. You know, we're not necessarily going to share with someone else afterwards, but maybe it's something at home. Maybe it's something with our career. Maybe there's a physical uh, issue. Uh, maybe it's finances. Whatever it is, there's an issue and there's a problem. So whatever it is, just apply these principles to repairing whatever's broken in your life, okay? Nehemiah chapter 1, I want to encourage you to follow along in your Bible. If you're using one of the church Bibles, I'm on page 476. I have most of the verses for you on the screen, but it's always good to follow along. Nehemiah 2, here's how it starts. In the month of Nisan, which is April, okay? This is important because the story starts in December. What is he doing for four or five months? Waiting on the Lord and praying. There's value there, okay? In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought to the king, I took the wine and I gave it to the king. 
Just to kind of recap from last week, Nehemiah is a cupbearer. This is essentially a butler, advisor, security guard to the king. His main job requirement was to taste the food, to taste the wine, to make sure it's not poisoned before he gives it to the king. That's why he's in this position. So he hands the king the wine. And then we read, I had not been sad in his presence before. Now, when you're doing Bible study, one of the things you want to notice is identify words that are repeated or themes that are repeated. And what you see in the first just couple verses of Nehemiah chapter two is this theme of sadness gets repeated and highlighted, right? I I had not been sad in his presence before. And and so the king asked me, "Why, why does your face look so sad when you're not ill? This can be nothing but here it is again, sadness of the heart. I was very much afraid. Now, in order to to repair what's broken, in order to fix a problem, in order to tackle a tough job, that's what we're calling our study this morning. It's not always necessary for you to be the best, but it is helpful if you care the most. Because there's motivation behind that. And what I want to point out to you is that very obviously, Nehemiah is burdened about what is going on to the point that he's thinking about it so much, you could see it on his face. He's, he's, he's bummed out because of what's going on back in Jerusalem. What I do want to ask you, though, and point out to you, though, is why the shift emotionally so quickly? Three times we're told that he's sad. He's sad. He's sad. The king notices that he said, hey, why are you sad? And immediately just the question sends him into panic, fear, and he's terrified. Why the shift? Why doesn't Nehemiah just go, yeah, I'm bummed out? Why, why, why the shift? Well, there's two possible answers. Both of them are contributing to what's going on here. Number one, in those days, remember, he is working for a pagan king in Babylon. They're very persnickety. It's years and years ago. Possible reason number one, probable reason number one, is that in those days, it was illegal to be sad in the king's presence as an employee. There are records where you could literally be imprisoned and at times put to death. Right? It's this kind of, you know, some companies have it. This whole idea is don't bring your personal problems to work. Leave your personal problems at home. And when you come to work, work. That's the principle taken to the extreme. And the king's like, no, 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 no frowning in my presence. I want people that are upbeat. I want people who are doing their job. That's problem number one. Problem number two. The reason Nehemiah is sad, watch this, is the king's fault. It's his boss's fault. You see, it was King Artaxerxes that was responsible for the walls being destroyed. It was King Artaxerxes and his public policy of they're never getting rebuilt. No, leave them torn down. You see, the Jews are his enemy. Oh, no, no, I don't want them rebuilding. Oh, no, I, I don't want them getting any grandiose ideas. I don't want them getting all encouraged. I don't want them getting a revolt against me. No, the walls stay broken down. So why does Nehemiah go from sadness to fear? Well, number one, he's not allowed to be sad in the presence of the king. And number two, his problem is his boss's fault. And so what do you what do you do? Right. It's not appropriate for the janitor at the White House to walk into the Oval Office and tell the president he doesn't like his policies. And it's not appropriate for the cupbearer to go into the court and to tell the king he doesn't like his policies. So he's stuck. He's stuck. Principle number one is important. 
You need to expect worry and you need to expect fear and you need to expect anxiety to come your way, but you can't be controlled by them. Interesting study I bumped into about tigers. We don't live in a part of the world where we have tigers. You can see them at a zoo occasionally. We've seen them in movies. Uh, but one, one of the studies uh, was trying to figure out why is it that when tigers attack their prey, many times, not only animals, but also people literally freeze. Like for a second or two, they, just, they, they freeze, which is all really the tiger needs uh, in terms of time because they're very fast, right? And very quickly, that prey becomes tiger food, right? Very sharp claws, very sharp teeth. But, but why is it that when, when humans and or animals are attacked by a tiger, why is it that our first instinct isn't to turn and run? This isn't like a bear. Bears, are, you're supposed to pretend like you're dead or play dead. Not with tigers. You run. Why, why are the animals paralyzed? A, 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 a research institute on the East Coast gave us an answer. Here's what they told us. Here's what they discovered. When a tiger begins to attack its prey, it will roar. Now, I realize we've never heard the roar of a tiger in the wild. Maybe we've heard it in a movie. It's, it's kind of, it's going to create some fear and panic and it should cause you to want to run. Go, 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 go. But here's what this research institute on the East Coast discovered. They discovered that when a tiger roars, it not only produces the sound what you and I can hear, it also produces a sound that is of such low frequency. Your ears and the animal's ears can't hear it, but they do feel it. So they roar and you hear something, but this low frequency literally is felt by you on the inside. And what this research institute is telling us is that what you feel on the inside literally causes you in terms of your body to freeze and paralyze for a second or two. Isn't that interesting? Now, we're, we're not going to be chased by tigers this week, my guess, right? But some of us are controlled by fear or worry or anxiety. Could I ask you a question? How would you live your life if you weren't worried? What would you do if you weren't afraid? How would you go about repairing your wall and fixing your issue if you don't have anxiety controlling you, directing you. Now, I want to be, be really clear. There's nothing wrong with anxiety, worry, fear. Initially, you got a tiger running at you. I can understand it causes fear. you got a big issue. you got a big problem. I can understand there's some level of worry. I get it, right? The doctor said there's a problem. Your kid's heading in the wrong direction. You're, you're in debt and you can't get out. You, you know, you've lost that loving feeling in your marriage. You're in a spiritual rut. Any of these issues or whatever problem, I need a new job, whatever it is, it causes some level of anxiety. I get that. The issue is you can't allow it to control you. It, you can't allow it to paralyze you because in, in, paral in doing nothing, you've already made a decision. The wall's not getting rebuilt. The problem's not getting solved. So what do we do? Well, when you look at Nehemiah, there's, there's two things. One, and there's no easy way to say it. He just pushes through. And you have to learn, I have to learn to push through my fear, to push through my anxiety and my worry, right? As parents, we try and teach that to our kids, right? It's okay to... I remember my preaching professor, when, when I was in seminary, he used to say, it's okay to have butterflies when you preach. 
right? Because not everybody likes to stand up on stage with a microphone. It makes you a little nervous initially when you start. It's okay to have butterflies as long as your butterflies fly in formation. <laughs> Which was his way of saying is be prepared and push through. Just because you're nervous doesn't mean you don't do it. Just because you have a little anxiety doesn't mean you don't do it. So you see Nehemiah just pushing through, but then we also see some dependence on God. I want to show you, let's put these next verses up there. I want to show you that the, 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 the whole key to this story, the whole key to the entire book is the first word of verse three. Everything hinges on the first word of verse three. I was very much afraid. That's the end of verse two. First word of verse three, but when you're doing Bible study, one of the things you want to do is you want to you want to look at scripture and figure out what could have been there. Because verse three could have gone like this. Verse two, I was very much afraid. So the king asks me, why are you so afraid? Why are you? Why are you sad? Why are you bummed out? And I, Nehemiah, made up a story that I had indigestion. That's why I looked the way I did. The king asked me, why are you bummed out? And I, and I, you know, I told him my cousin died last week and I'm still, you know, the, the king asked me, why are you bummed out? And I told him I didn't sleep well last night. See, Nehemiah has the option to just avoid the subject. Nehemiah has the option to not address the problem. But instead we read, I was very much afraid, but I spoke to the king. And that's the issue you're going to have. Are you going to push through your fear? Are you going to push through your anxiety? I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, may the king live forever, which is Nehemiah's way of saying, I don't want to, I'm not trying to be disrespectful, but I'm going to tell you what my problem is, right? And, and in saying it, he's going to basically say to his boss, you're the problem. He's, he's, he's walking into deep water right here. Why should my face not look so sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins? And its gates have been destroyed by fire. Then the king said to me, Nehemiah, what do you want? What can I do? How can I help? Let me ask you just a side note question. Uh, if you had a personal issue, personal problem, are you, do you contribute at work in such a way? Are you valuable enough at work that your boss would say the same thing to you? How can I help? What can I do? Not that I need to help you. Not that it's my responsibility to help you, but you're valuable enough. What can I do? Just something to think about. Because sometimes we get in those situations where we need someone to help us that has no obligation to actually do anything. How can I help? What can I do? Then I prayed to the God of heaven and I answered the king. Now, I want you to notice something. The boss, the king says, how can I help? Then I prayed, I answered the king. What can I do? Then I prayed, I answered the king. Is it just me or is there's no gap between those three statements? There's no time between those three statements. Let me, what I want to do, because prayer has come up now quite a bit in the book of Nehemiah. We're only in chapter two. And what I want to ask you and I want to do is analyze the prayer. And and I'm going to give you some contrast. So just stay with me. Let me show you what I mean. Let's put it on the screen. I want to figure out is your is Nehemiah's prayer a private prayer or a public prayer? Now, let me explain. Is it private in the sense that the king asks him, Nehemiah, what do you want? Next phrase is then I prayed. So is Nehemiah saying, King, before I answer you, can I just go to my bedroom? I want to pray for a little bit and then I'm going to come back and answer you. 
Or is it public? In other words, right in front of everybody in the court. Next question, is it an out loud prayer or a quiet prayer? Nehemiah, the king asked Nehemiah, what do you want? Does Nehemiah just break out into prayer? Oh, Yahweh, God, I beseech thee. Does he do that? Is it an out loud prayer or is it underneath his breath prayer? Quiet. Is it, is it an eyes closed prayer? Or is it an eyes open prayer? No one even knows he's actually praying. Is it a deep theological quote scripture prayer or is it a simple prayer? Is it a long prayer? Is it a short prayer? Do you see, see how I'm contrasting this here? Now, here's what I want to show you. The left side of the screen is the prayer that we see in Nehemiah chapter 1. The right side of the screen is the, is the prayer that we see in Nehemiah chapter 2. Do you remember Nehemiah 1? Three quarters of the chapter, he's praying. You see, the left side of the screen is very appropriate for you when it comes to prayer. There is a place for private prayer, out loud prayer, close my eyes, deep, long prayers, you and God, you take this sucker and you turn it off. You turn your laptop off. You turn your TV off. There's no distraction from the kids. They're already in bed. It's 15, 20 minutes. You have a list that you're praying through or a journal. You need that kind of prayer in your life. That's Nehemiah one. But you also need Nehemiah two. Right. You need right in the middle of the day, very quick, without everyone, anyone else actually knowing what you're doing, praying. Why? Because you're going to find yourselves in the situation that Nehemiah found himself in. Don't you? Every one of us all week long. This is what we have. We're right in the middle of a conversation and we come to the tipping point. And we know as Nehemiah knows. Nehemiah, what do you need? What's wrong? We know, Nehemiah knows, what I say right now is going to determine, is, is the wall going to get built or, is it, or does this idea change? Does idea die? And you're going to have conversations like this. You're going to have a tipping point conversation with your boss, with a spouse you're trying to figure, with your kid that you're trying to parent, with someone you're trying to witness to. Maybe you're trying to close a deal or a sale. And you get to that point in that conversation, you know, this is it. What I say now determine what happens. And at that very moment, what I'm suggesting is do a Nehemiah chapter two prayer. Very quick, very short, underneath your breath, but pray and ask God for help. I must have been about 16 years old. My parents had moved from Spain to Michigan. We were back for one year. I was driving to high school. It was in the middle of the winter in Michigan. My mom was sitting next to me in the car. There I was in our old Ford Maverick driving to high school about 730 in the morning. We crossed over an overpass and we hit black ice. Now, we don't really have black ice in the Bay Area. Maybe if you've been in Tahoe, you've experienced some of that. But black ice, you can't see it. It's very slippery, very dangerous, right? So we crossed the overpass. And as soon as the car hit the black ice, the car started spinning and it was spinning fast. We were going and there were cars all around us. Now, thank goodness, no accident. We didn't hit any cars. We didn't hit the guardrail. No one was hurt. But while we were spinning, it was scary, right? It was scary. And, and it, it didn't, it didn't last that long, maybe seven, eight seconds. But I I kid you not, as I'm driving, we hit the black ice. The car started to do this. As soon as the car did that, my mom started to pray just like that, just like Nehemiah. I have an issue. I have a problem. First instinct, pray. This is what her prayer was. Lord, help us, Lord. But remember, I told you the car was spinning for about seven, eight seconds. 
She prayed that prayer like 900 times. I kid you not. I've never heard her talk. Lord, help us. Lord, 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 help us. Lord, 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 Lord. You know, when time freezes, I kind of looked at her, right? And her mouth was just like. (laughs) The funniest thing. Okay, I'm exaggerating a little bit. But she said it over and over and over and over again. Right? Why? Because she knew at the moment that she was in trouble. We were in trouble. She didn't have time for a left side of the screen prayer. She only had time for a right side of the screen prayer. Quick. Eyes open. Simple. And Nehemiah knew the same thing. I think he probably prayed something similar to my mom. Lord, help me right now. Or maybe he prayed, God, give me the right words. Or maybe he prayed, God, soften my boss's heart. But I guarantee you it was quick. Nehemiah, what do you need? And under his breath, in his spirit, real quickly, he prays to God. And then he speaks. And what I want to encourage you to, because this is all in the context of pushing past your fear. Yes, you have to push by. But I want to encourage you, be in this constant attitude and mode of prayer. Because whether it's a conversation, or whether your car is spinning, or whether it's something at work, or it's something at home, God is always available to you to help them. You need to ask. You need to ask, okay? The story moves on. Verse 4 and following, here's what we read. Then I prayed to the God of heaven, and I answered the king. If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, which is Nehemiah's way of saying, hey, every year you give me a job review, I'm doing pretty good. He's, it's his way of reminding him, right? If your servant has found favor in his sight, which I know I have, well, let him send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild it. Then the king with the queen sitting beside him asked me, well, how long will your journey take? When will you get back? He's being a good boss, right? Want to figure out exactly what this is going to look like. If it pleases the king to send me. So I set a time, right? Please the king to send me. I also said to him, if it pleases the king, notice how respectful he is, right? May I have letters to the governors of trans Euphrates so that they will provide me with safe conduct until I arrive in Judah. And may I have a letter to Asaf, keeper of the royal park. So he will give me timber to make beams for the gates at the citadel by the temple and of the city wall and for the residence I will occupy. Because of the gracious hand of God was on me, the king granted my requests. So I went off to the, to the governors of trans Euphrates, gave them the king's letters. The king also had sent army officials and cavalry with me. Principle number two, when you're trying to rebuild your wall is this. You need to develop a plan, then you need to swing for the fences. You need to develop a plan and then you need to swing for the fences. So one of the conclusions we gather from Nehemiah's response is that since December to April, when he heard about the problem to when the king asked him, what can I do? He's thinking about it. He's processing it. He's planning. When the king asked him, Nehemiah, what do you need? Nehemiah's like, I'm glad you asked. I got four things I need. And he's incredibly detailed. Number one, I need a visa. You see, I'm going to travel through two or three countries. I don't want to give them them to give me trouble. I don't want them to stop me at the border or send me back. I need a visa from you with your stamp upon it so I have safe and quick travel. Number two, I need materials. You see, I'm going to need to reframe the wall. I'm going to need to build a house to live in while I'm there. So I'm going to go right by the king's forest. And so if you can give me some timber for the wall, that would help. Number three, I need protection. 
At the end of the verse, at the end of the little section, we see that the cavalry and the army goes with them. And finally, I need a leave of absence. I'm not quitting. I want my job back, by the way. I'm just taking a leave. That's what I need. But by the way, if you were going to take a leave of absence from your job, an emergency comes up. Maybe you have to take care of a parent or you get sick or you need some time off. What would be a reasonable amount of time to ask your boss for a leave and have a guaranteed job when you came back a month, three months at the most six months, maybe depending on the job. Wouldn't you say six months is about the most you could ask for? Would you agree with me? Hello? Are you guys out there? Stay with me. <laughs> you want to know how much Nehemiah asked for? You know what chapter four, chapter five tells us he asked for 12 years. This guy is bold. I'm going to go. I'm going to be back in 12 years. When I come back, I want my job back. 12 year leave of absence. That's why I say, come up with a plan and then swing away. Don't be giving me no bunt single. Swing for the fences. You want to fix your wall. You want to repair your problem. Swing away. Now, you've heard it said before. Benjamin Franklin, he was the one attributed, if you fail to plan, you're planning to fail. You know, that phrase has been thrown around so often and we put it on posters and blah, blah, blah. We don't really think about how true it really is. If you're not planning, you're going to fail. Now, as interesting as it is to hear what Benjamin Franklin said, let, let's talk about how, how about what God said about planning. Proverbs 4 Plan carefully what you do. Proverbs 16. We should make plans counting on God to direct us. Question. If God isn't directing you, could it possibly be simply because you don't have a plan? Oh, God, direct me. I don't know what to do. And he's up in the conference room in heaven going, if you just put a plan together, I'd help you. I mean, you have to connect those two phrases. Why is God so much into planning? 1 Corinthians 14, God is not a God of disorder. Even God has plans. Even God has a to-do list for every week in terms of what he needs to get done. Think about your problem. Your financial problem. You're in debt and can't get out. Do you have a plan? Have you figured out what you're going to do with your credit cards? Have you figured out how you're going to change your spending? Have you sat down with a financial analyst? Have you, have you done that? Do you have a plan? Your marriage is in trouble. You've lost that loving feeling. Are you sitting down with a counselor? Are you sitting down with a pastor? Have you gone to a conference, right? Have you read a book? Are you getting advice from someone that's older than you and they've been married forever? Do you have a plan to fix your marriage? Your kid's heading in the wrong direction. Are you just going to complain to your friends about it? Or do you have a plan to try and shift them back on the right path? Right? Your body isn't doing well. Do you have a plan? Are you going to go to the gym? Are you going to lose weight? Are you going to eat differently? Are you going to go to the doctor? Do you have a plan? You're in a spiritual rut. Are you going to pick up your Bible more consistently? Are you going to sign up for a small group? Are you going to go to discipleship classes? Are you going to be here more consistently on Sunday? Do you have a plan? Now, what I'm going to say next is going to sound like you're at a business seminar, not like you're in church. And it's going to bother some of you, and I really don't care. Amen. Here we go. Planning is just as important as praying. It doesn't sound very spiritual, though, does it? 
But you, you are hard pressed to convince me otherwise. Because Nehemiah chapter one, it's about praying. It's about waiting. And I, I, hey, before you do anything else last week, before you do anything else, pray. But Nehemiah chapter two is all about planning. You want to go to college, you got to start planning a year out, two years out. Where do I want to go? What colleges look good? You know, do I do community college for a little bit and then go to four-year school? Do I go to state school? Do I go to a private school? Then do I get loans? How do I get loans? Can I beg money from my parents, my grandparents? You got to figure that out. And it takes time. It takes a plan. Everything good worth accomplishing, especially something that's broken, requires a plan. Now, here's the thing. We all gravitate towards one or the other. Some of us are really good at praying and depending on God. And praise God for that. That's important. Some of us are really good at the planning. And what I'm saying is you need both. You need both. Every once in a while, I'll bump into someone and they're all excited about what they want to do and what they want to accomplish. And I'm going to charge the hill and blah, blah, blah. And I, well, what's your plans? Yeah, no, <clears throat> I'm just going to trust Jesus. <laughs> It sounds so godly, and it's pretty stupid. I'm all for trusting Jesus. Nehemiah one, but now you have to put your you have to put your idea and break it down a little bit. Some of us we skipped chapter one and we didn't depend on God. We didn't wait on God. We haven't prayed. And you need to do that. You need to best go to the prayer room afterwards, sit down with someone, or spend some time with God because it matters. And some of us need to get a legal pad and write out the 10 steps we're going to do to get out of our financial trouble, to fix our marriage, to help our kids, to get a better job. They both matter. They both matter. On the backside of your study guide, I don't have it for you on the screen, but the first 10 verses are a public request. He asks for help. The second section of chapter 2, he does private research. So he's already in Jerusalem when we pick up the story. This is still part of this planning section. Let's read it. I went to Jerusalem and after staying there for three days, I set out during the night with a few others. I had not told anyone what my God had put on my heart to do for Jerusalem. There were no mounts with me except the one that I was riding on by night. Now, this is the second time he mentions that he's doing this by night. By night, I went through the valley gate toward the jackal well and the dung gate, examining the walls of Jerusalem. That's what he's doing, right? Examining the walls of Jerusalem, which had been broken down and its gates had been destroyed by fire. Then I moved on to the fountain gate and the king's pool. There was not enough room for my mount to get through, right? Because of all the rubble. So I went up by the valley by night, third time. I'm going by night, examining the wall. Second time he says that. Finally, I turned back, re-entered through the valley gate. The officials did not know where I was or where I had gone or what I was doing because I had not said anything to the Jews or the priests or the nobles or the officials or any others who, who, who would be doing the work. Two principles just real quick and then we're going to get on to the last point. Principle number one, it's vital to get the facts before you launch. You've got to do your homework. Now, Nehemiah chapter one, he gets a report from the Jews that the wall is broken. That's helpful. But at some point in time, you have to do your own homework, especially if it's your problem. You've got to figure out what's wrong. I don't have the verses for you, but Proverbs chapter 23, 23, get the facts at any price. Proverbs 18, 13, spouting off before you listen to the facts is foolish. You've got to get the facts. 
The second thing and second principle is it's easier to kill an idea than to get it off the ground. If, if you're a leader, if you're in management, even if you're not, but you're in charge of initiative, this is incredibly important. The reason he goes at night and the reason he doesn't tell anybody is he's not ready to publicly launch his program and his idea. Why? Because if you do that before the program and idea is well developed, people will start nitpicking it to death and knock it to the ground. Even if they're not mean about it, they'll go, well, have you thought about this? And well, this isn't going to happen. What about this? And before you know it, what you thought was a good idea is in the rubble because you haven't, you haven't thought it through and carefully analyzed the issue yet. One of the, the, the best lessons I've learned over the years, especially when I was a young pastor, is I would share ideas way too soon. And now, even right now, I have ideas, programs, initiatives that I want to start for the church. I haven't told anyone yet. You know why? I'm not sure if the idea we should do it yet. I'm still thinking about it, praying about it, reading about it. And then when I'm ready, it goes to the leadership board. It goes to the staff or a key people at the church. And well, what do you think? And they help me massage the idea. And then after quite a while of that, then we present it. And you have to take the same approach essentially I'm doing or basically Nehemiah is doing. Sometimes the wisest thing you can do is bite your tongue. You're not ready to launch publicly yet. You're not ready yet. Sometimes it's easier to kill an idea than get it going. So you have to be sure that when you start the takeoff, you have enough energy to keep that sucker going up. Okay? Here's the last point. We're going to wrap up with this and we'll pick it up next week. Point number three is if you're not ready to deal with people, you're not ready. Wouldn't life be so much better other than for the people? So much easier, right? (laughs) Two things. You need to expect critics to whine and to try and tear you down. Now, I don't have the the verses on the screen, but you see the references there. If you have your Bibles open, you'll see in verse 10, there's two two guys. One, his name is Sambalot, and the other's Tobiah, and they're going to come up over and over again. And the first thing that we read is they, when they heard about it, when he finally tells them what he's going to do, I'm going to rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. This is their first response. They were very much disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. What? Is it just me or what am I missing here? Nehemiah quits his really cushy job that he has at the court. He travels and he's going he's gonna to start mixing cement and laying bricks to repair the wall. And these two guys are like, yeah, no, we're not in favor of helping the people of Jerusalem. But they live in Jerusalem. What, what's going on here? What's going on here is that you're going to have those kind of people everywhere you go. Isn't it true? You work with them. You go to school with them. Sometimes you live with them. We go to church with them. Don't look at them. They're here. (laughs) Everywhere you go, there's always someone that goes, what are you doing? Why are we doing that? I'm against that. It's good. It's positive. It's growth. But for for some reason, they're not for it. And here's my point. Expect it. It's called life. I, I told a story. Uh, for, most of you, I guess, don't remember. The first two services didn't remember. It's a story about a donkey that falls down a well. Just stay with me. I've told it before, but I want to point out three particular things. Old donkey walking along falls into an old, abandoned, dried up well. Right? The farmer sees the donkey and thinks to himself, well, he's old. He looks like he's injured. He's probably not going to make it. How am I going to get him out anyway? I, I, I think I'm just going to bury him, right? 
I, oh, it's just a story. Someone's upset over there. Just, I appreciate you being into the sermon, but just, just an illustration. So he calls a couple guys over. They get shovels. He says, bury, bury the donkey. So there they go. Start burying the donkey. And the donkey's at the bottom of the well, you know. And all of a sudden, dirt starts falling on top of him. He's like, what's going on? And then he realizes what's happening. And he starts shrieking. He, oh, my goodness, they're burying me. You know, he's all upset. Right? Poor donkey. And he's, this goes on and on and on. After a while, right? Guys are throwing dirt on. Yeah. It gets all quiet. It gets all quiet. So the farmer's like, goes, oh, what the heck is going on? He, he looks underneath. He looks down the well. And this is what he sees. The donkey, when the dirt falls on top of him, he shakes it off and he steps up. And the dirt falls on top of him, he shakes it off and he steps up and he shakes it off and he steps up. And this keeps going on and on. And after a while, the dirt level keeps going up. Donkey jumps out of the well and off he rose. God brought some of you here to church today for these three things. Let's put it on the screen. Write them down. Stop moping. People are going to throw dirt on you. Stop moping. Instead, shake it off. You have a good idea. You have a good initiative. You're trying to make your life or someone else's life better. So don't let the critics get you off path. Shake it off and step up. Move forward. Keep going. Does that make sense? Second thing, and we're going to save this for next week, but it's important. You have to prepare to recruit and motivate a team. In verses 17 through 20... There's this whole idea of recruiting and motivating a team. All I want to say for the moment is this. And ne- but you can't miss next week. Nehemiah chapter 3 is probably one of my favorite Old Testament chapters. It's absolutely incredible when you start looking at what's going on there. To accomplish something big, to repair something that's really broken, a lot of times you need help. A lot of times you need a team. Now that team may be other bricklayers. Or that it may just be, especially in the Christian community, people that encourage you, people that, uh, that pray for you, people that motivate you. That may be all you need. But you need a team. You're not going to get it done on your own. Now, here's what we've learned so far. You need to pick one of these three things. What do you most need to work on, right? you got a broken wall. Some of us, the decision today is that we need to stop being controlled by fear and worry and we got to push through. We have to have an attitude of dependence on God. You have been in a stagnant mode way too long. Push through your fear. Push through your anxiety. Get on with it. Second of all, some of us got to work on a plan. You literally have to sit down with a legal pad and start writing it out. What am I going to do to fix my problem? What five steps do I need to accomplish? Write it down. Okay? And third... Some of us got to learn how to deal with people, the critics. And by the way, don't don't be the don't be the person. I don't care what people think of me. That's not smart. Don't be that person. Right. My my challenge to you is be someone who has thick skin, but a tender heart. You don't don't be that person who doesn't care what others think of you. You should care what others think of you, but just don't be controlled by that. right. Right. So you have to learn to deal with critics and or you need to build your team. Which one of those do you most need to do? I'm going to wrap it up with this. Just got about a minute or two left. We haven't even started to mix the cement or lay the bricks to fix your wall. What I want you to know is the bigger your problem, the harder you need to work. Instinctively, you know that, right? The bigger your problem, the more you have to work. Here's the issue. Some of us, because the work is so hard, because the work is so tedious, 
we're likely and li- to, to, to give up too soon. And I don't want you to do that. So I'm going to give you some perspective that hopefully will help motivate you to keep going and keep going and keep persevering. I want you to, we're going to do a little social experiment and it's going to be really obvious afterward. We have two people, same age, same background, right? Same education. And they are given the same job, same shift, working side by side. Okay, you get the point. They're identical. I'm trying to make it. But but it's very hard work, very tedious work. Let's say it's a factory job, assembly line type of a job. Okay, not really fun. The boss comes to employee number one and says, listen, it's not fun work. It's hard work. It's tedious work. And I want you to know that our policy here is you work for 12 months and then we pay you. Yeah, so here we go. And we're going to pay you after one year worth of work, $25,000. Right? Employee number one is desperate for a job. They don't have any other options. So they got to take the deal. It's not fun. It's tedious. They're not going to like it. $25,000 for 12 years worth of work. Employee number two is given the same speech. It's not fun work. It's tedious work. You're not really going to enjoy it. It's hard. And you're only going to get paid once at the end of the year. But at the end of your year, we're going to pay you $25 million. Let me ask you a question. As the weeks go on, are their attitudes the same? Absolutely not. Employee number one is like, this job sucks. I need to find something else. I hate this job. Right? Because what's ahead of them isn't that great. But employee number two, they show up to work and they're whistling. They're like, I love this job. I can't wait to come back tomorrow. Why? Because their perspective is the reward I get at the end is worth all the garbage I got to go through right now. And that's what you need to understand about your problem. The reward ahead of you is great, but the work is hard. Work it. Persevere. Change your attitude, change your perspective, knowing that in the end, God's got a reward for you that's worth it. You got it? Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you every week. You surprise us, confirm to us how practical this book is. We're grateful. We pray for those that all of us that showed up today with something broken in our life. I pray that we would take at least one of the ideas we've learned today and apply it. We love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.